we finish up on our sermon series in the book of James, I hope you learned something new about James. It's a wonderful, a wonderful book, short book. It's only five chapters and it's only 105 verses, but um, powerful what he has to share. Um, talk is cheap, but faith is steep. It's been our theme. And so um, let me just begin by reading one little excerpt from the, um, from the book of James, from the fourth chapter. We've kind of been walking along. And so this is a kind of our key verse that we're focusing on today. Um, and then I'm going to read some other scripture here in just a minute. But um, this is basically how it goes. And this is from the James 4, 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Can you put that up on the screen if you could be gracious enough, that first slide? Um, can, participation part of the sermon. Here we go. You ready? Let's say this together. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I, I just, I thought this was interesting. I read this last week. 35% of the book of James actually f- focuses on that particular theme. You know, last week I shared with you all 20% of the book of James talked about taming the tongue and how sometimes our, well, sometimes the things that we say get us in trouble. Is anybody can vouch for that? Yeah, okay. And so we, you know, by the way, I got a lot of feedback on that sermon last week. So anyway, evidently it must resonate with some people. And so let me just share with you all this theme for today, because we're going to talk a bit about pride, humility, and, um, and showing favoritism towards other people. Um, James is really clear about that, not, not to show favoritism. Uh, so here's a great quote from Rick Warren from The Purpose Dream Life. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Mm. So I was thinking about this this week. And so, um, by the way, uh, this, this theme about um, what I share with you all, uh, God opposes the proud. He shows favor to the humble, James 4, 6. Uh, James actually stole that, came right from the book of Proverbs. This is how the Proverbs writes that same thing. He mocks proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. So um, here's the interesting thing. Um, this uh, last week, I was thinking about, once again, my, my childhood. And, um, you know, I remember going when we would go on vacation. Sometimes we stop at places and, um, and we, you know, go to little gift shops and so forth. And, and um, I, a lot of times we would, there would be like these little things there and little trinkets. Like, for example, I brought this. Someone had given this to me. And, um, and it had little fish on it because they knew that I like fishing. And so I, if they, maybe they found this as a bargain in blessings. I don't know, but they just thought they wanted to give it to me. And so I have this in my office. And, and so it's kind of fragile, right? But I remember from my childhood, um, I remember um, these kind of signs that would be on fragile things. Um, and the first sign would be this, do not touch, right? Which made me want to touch it that much more, right? I mean, somebody tells you not to do it, but then you want to go there anyway. Um, by the way, the time of my sermon today is to um, resist the irresistible. Um, and so then, um, and then next to that sign, do not touch, would be the other sign that was always famous. If you break it, you bought it, right? You remember that? Sometimes, you know, to resist the irresistible. Uh, James is talking about today, about um, so often, like sometimes we, we judge people, we show favoritism towards people, and what James is saying, listen, resist the irresistible. 
was watching them, uh, I don't know, game this last NBA playoffs are on. I was watching them. Of course, when you're watching sports, usually they're advertising a lot of beer and they advertise a lot of pizza. And um, I was watching the pizza thing and it was, I don't know, it was like uh, Little Caesars or Domino's or Pizza Hut. And I thought, man, that looks pretty good. And I started craving a pizza. So then I remember I had gone to Publix um, a few weeks ago and they had like this buy one, get one thing, good, or maybe it was like two for, uh, for 10 bucks or something. So I, I actually bought a couple of pizzas. And so what was interesting is that, uh, and so I went and I made me a pizza. Um, and so matter of fact, I have a picture of the pizza. And so what's interesting on the box, here's the interesting thing. The, what looks really great on the outside of the box, it does not come out looking like, well, this, is different from this. I'm just telling you that, right? <laughs> Can we all vouch for that? Because it looks really, really good on the TV and it looks really, really good on the box. But once you take it out and you start eating it, it doesn't look anything like this. It looks like this, right? Um, and so, as a matter of fact, a matter of fact it tastes a whole lot like the cardboard that's underneath <laughs> the pizza. And it has the same nutritional value, right? <laughs> and so my point, and I think what James is getting at today, is that sometimes you can't just judge a book by its cover. So, you know, I love about James is it, James has this great kind of reversal. We find this in, um, and we find this in the gospel, but we find this also in James, what I call by the great reversal um, sometimes things look really good on the outside, but they don't, aren't so good on the inside. And sometimes things don't look so good on the outside, but they're actually pretty good on the inside. There's a reverse to that. Um, so like James just gives an example, like pride versus humility, favoritism towards being partial to other people, judging rather than showing mercy. And he defines this, I shared with last week about true religion versus worthless religion and I asked you all that question last week what are your words worth I, I was uh, reading this last week I heard this great story it's like a story about John Barrier back in 1989 this actually was in the um, Washington Post uh, John was actually born in um, in Texas and um, and then he moved to Spokane Washington and um, actually, I think he was an orphan, and he was a self-made man, a blue-collar guy. He, when he moved out to Washington, he started buying little houses up and started flipping them. He did pretty good with that. So one day, um, it was interesting, um, he had gone down to his bank there in Spokane, Washington, and, um, and he did some business, and so he cashed a check. It was like 100 bucks. So, you know, here's um, John. He drove up kind of an old beat-up pickup truck, you know, and he was, I'm sure he was kind of not looking too good. He was probably in his blue jeans and had paint on his boots and, you know, he wasn't looking too good. And um, on the outside, so he goes in and says, I'd like to cash this check. So they said, sure, we'll cash the check. So then he goes out to the uh, parking garage and evidently it was maybe downtown or something. So the, the parking attendant said to him, hey man, listen, if you take this back in there, um, they'll validate this when you won't have to charge it. It was 60 cents. So this is back in 1989, 60 cents. So he says, okay, well, you know, John being kind of a thrifty guy, he goes in and says, takes the 60 cents. I mean, he takes the little thing and takes it back to the cashier and says, hey, listen, uh, the guy out here told me that I, I'm, if you would validate this for me and I don't have to pay the 60 cents. And he goes, then she says, well, you know, it, it's our policy that if, you know, you have to, uh, you gotta be making a deposit rather than cashing a check for the 60 cents. And he says, really? He says, look, can I talk to the manager about that? 
So the manager comes out, and so the manager sizes him all up and looks at John. He's looking a little crusty, driving a little old beat-up pickup truck, his dungarees. And he says, listen, they told me that I can't get this validated. Um, can you help me with that? And he says, no, well, our policy is if you, you just, you came in, you didn't put a deposit in. You only came in for, to cash the check. And then he says, well, uh, we can't honor that. And so then John says, okay, that's fine. I tell you what, why don't you go ahead and just give me a cashier's check. I'm going to check, I'm going to check cash out. So give me all my money out of my checking account, my savings account, and put it all in the cashier's check. And the guy says, well, sure, I'll be happy to do that for you, sir. So he goes and looks on the computer of how much Mr. Bear is worth, and he was worth over a million bucks. Over a million bucks. Wow. Then they start backpedaling. Uh, Mr. Bear, you know, hey, listen, I'll be happy to validate. No, 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 no. We're good. I'm going to go down. And he takes his million-dollar check, and he goes and opens up a brand-new account with the bank down the street. And, and the reason why I actually did some research on this story, and so here, as you saw, here's a picture of the article about that. And I thought it was a really interesting quote from John Bear. He looked me at, referring to the manager, he looked me up and down and stood back and gave me one of those looks. Don't judge a book by its cover. This last week, um, I was listening to my friend Don Huggins gave his uh, testimony and gave a devotion at men's breakfast. I was sitting there listening. He did a great job and talking about, about, you know, his connection with the food pantry. And so back in, I think it was about 2005, I think Gary Bullock had talked to maybe Don about, you know, maybe uh, helping lead the food pantry because uh, the Wildwood, uh, the people at Wildwood United Methodist Church, I think it was getting bigger and bigger and they didn't have enough maybe volunteers to help. So they asked if maybe New Covenant could help with that. And so um, so Don had evidently volunteered to maybe help with that. And the person evidently are persons that were kind of associated with that ministry in 2005 at the time, evidently said to Don, according to his testimony this last week, hey, listen, I'll just give you six months and you'll quit. I'll give you six months of this. So here's a picture of Don and Marlene Huggins. And by the way, you know what? They've been doing it for 18 years. Isn't that great? It's just another testimony. You don't judge a book by its. I was thinking about this last week. I love Hollywood, right? And so one of the greatest movies of all time is, once again, can you show this next slide? Rocky. You don't judge a book by its cover. I don't know if you all watched last week uh, or last night. It's 7 o'clock. Um, it was the Kentucky Derby. I love watching the Kentucky Derby. And so um, a horse uh, actually won, I think, from Venezuela. It was like maybe the first time that's ever won. Uh, it was just amazing. That barely just won. It was really exciting to watch that race. And, and it took me back um, um, to 1933. In 1933, there was a horse that was born. And his, he came from a pretty good pedigree. His, well, his daddy was named Man of War. And, and so, um, so they bought this, this colt um, and had these great expectations for this colt. And so the colt, um, you know, they trained the horse and it, it just didn't do really well. And, um, and so evidently um, the owners of this particular horse kind of gave up on him and um, they put him in um, uh, what they would call a claims, a claims um, race. And it was, they could claim him for, whoever wanted to claim him can claim him for 2,500 bucks. And so there were two people sitting out on the stadium that particular day. One guy's name was Tom Smith. The other guy was a trainer. Um, uh, Tom Smith was a trainer, and Charles Howard was a, evidently a millionaire. And he said, you know what? I'll take, a, 
I'll take a chance on this. And so, um, and so Tom began to train this horse. And someone reminded me as I shared this story last night that um, this particular horse had been evidently abused by the trainer. No wonder it didn't run very well. And so um, Tom, Tom had a way to rejuvenate horses. And so this horse went on to become a pretty great horse, and the horse's name is Seabiscuit. And so Seabiscuit's um, claim to fame, not only was he a phenomenal, ended up becoming a phenomenal horse, matter of fact, one of the greatest horses ever. You can look it up, top 15, okay? Um, and so he, the, his, in 1937, he, they called it the race of the century, and he took on a war admiral in a one-on-one -on -one race. And all this hype, it was kind of during the Depression, so that gave America something kind of excited about to kind of root for. So there's this underdog. Um, and so uh, War Admiral, Admiral was the greatest horse. Matter of fact, War Admiral won the Triple Crown that year. And so Seabiscuit took on this horse, the greatest horse in America, and he kicked his butt. <laughs> and it's a great story. Matter of fact, you might have seen the movie, but it's just, once again, you don't judge a book by its cover. So listen, I gave you some examples today, right? I mean, we can fa easily fall into that trap. James talks about showing favoritism towards other people. We can size people up and think one thing, but maybe we should be thinking something totally different because we're quick to judge people. Can I mention on that? I, I thought, you know, so I gave you an example of a pizza. I gave you an example of a bank. I gave you an example of someone volunteering. I gave you an example in Hollywood. I gave you an example of something going on on a track and horse racing. So let me give you this example out of the Old Testament. Don't judge a book by its cover. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Uh, Samuel said to Jesse, our all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains just one, young, my youngest. He, he just, he's a, well, he's a shepherd. He just keeps the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send him for him and bring him here, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent for him and brought him in. And now he was, well, he was ruddy, but he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. He was good looking. Lord said, rise up and anoint him, for this is the one. Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the presence of his whole and his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. You don't judge a book by its cover. Of course, David goes on to be the greatest king of Israel ever. You know what's interesting? Um, James, in the second chapter, has some insight. Once again, it's a great example. Um, he talks about favoritism, judging people. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, like, really? How can you show favoritism and, and be a Christian, he was saying. For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, have a seat right here, while to the one who is poor, you say, hey, stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James, don't judge a book by its cover. What's interesting about that is the word favoritism. I, 
I looked it up in the Greek. Uh, little context is it has everything to do with um, uh, judging a person by according to their face. Now think about that. How easy it is to judge someone. Um, like, for example, by their skin color or the culture they live in or their sexuality or if they're overweight or they underweight. James cautions us about showing favoritism. In little Greek, the word favoritism means by judging people by their face. My, my friend Lex Rivers, um, back in 1990, um, he was a very good friend of mine. We were in the, just starting out in the ministry. Lex was kind of a maverick, did things kind of unorthodox. He was a pastor at um, the United Methodist Church on Miami Beach. He had a really good tan, by the way. And um, he's a good-looking guy. And, and so we played basketball together on Fridays, and we kept it. I mean, it was like this brotherhood thing. You know, Miami is not an easy place to do ministry, and so we kind of stuck together. Um, they put all the young people down in Miami because a lot of people didn't want to go there, so there we went. And, um, and one day, Lex had this idea. He decided to go undercover as a homely, homeless person for about a week. And he, one day, he just put on some kind of old, dirty clothes and walked down the street and um, lived underneath a bridge, got to know the homeless people. I asked Les, what was that like? I mean, to me, that took a lot of guts to do that. And he did it. He said, well, first of all, Harold, I just want you to know, most people, when you walk on the street and you act like you're a beggar, they don't even make eye contact with you. They don't want to look at you. They ignore you. It's almost like they're afraid of you. So here's Lex, who's got a master's degree from, I don't know, Emory University like me, who's a pastor, who's ordained. He's an Isaac Methodist minister, but when he goes undercover as a homeless person, he gets treated completely different, unless he was wearing his clerical collar. There's a difference between wearing dirty rags and a clerical collar. And the way that people treated him in those different, two different arenas was amazing. Don't judge a book by its cover. James cautions us about that, about showing favoritism. We find that here. I, I thought this is actually an interesting thing. I was, um, Jim Harnish wrote a book called Three Simple Rules About Money, John Wesley. And he gave this particular story I thought was actually a really good story. He was talking, referred to his friend by the name of Phil. And I know who Phil is because I know Phil's actually one of my friends. His name is Phil Routon. He was a, back then, back when, actually when I was down there in Boynton Beach, Phil Routon was the pastor at First United Methodist Church, Boca Raton, Florida. Now, Boca Raton, Florida is hoity-toity. A lot of wealthy people live in Boca Raton. I mean, it's got a lot of wealth. So anyway, Phil was the pastor there. And so um, Phil one day was, uh, he, he was describes this. He's there in Boca Raton, Fort Lauderdale. And he's gone to his favorite place to go hang out, Starbucks, one day. And he says this young, very attractive uh, woman comes uh, strutting in. And, um, and she gets out of this really expensive sports car convertible and it looks like she just been came out of a photo shoot in a glossy fashion magazine and she's wearing a brilliant red t-shirt and in on the red t-shirt it's in big white letters and this is what her t-shirt says I want everything <laughs> and then um and then uh 
Jam uh, Harnish goes on to write, hey, so he said, Phil said that most of us, though we might hesitate to wear such a t-shirt, may have substituted greed for moral restraint. When, when that happens, some end up with far more than they need to live, and the result of that is what do you, what do you get for the person who already has everything dilemma? Unique to our culture, while others don't have near enough. Wesley, he talks about John, because the book is about Wesley. Wesley knew the gravitational reality we work so hard to ignore. He knew that a lust for everything without boundaries or limitation is like Wiley E. Coyote running off the cliff. Hmm. I was uh, looking at my phone yeah, a couple of days ago. I'm always looking for a new sermon illustration. And so I thought this was interesting. I'm just flipping through and has it popped up, um, all these different apps and different uh, things that happen in America. And this particular uh, things in culture. And this came up and it was a, a psychologist out of Cal State University. And the title of this particular article, and I clicked on it and read it, psychologist shares the six toxic phrases highly narcissistic people always use. Here we go, ready? Number one. I don't want to make this about me, but. <laughs> I'm sorry you feel that way. Why are you doing this to me? I am a busy person. I don't have time for this. I hope you know who you're messing with. It's just not fair. Six toxic phrases for highly narcissistic people. You know, it's interesting this week, I, I shared with you all last week um, this little banner that the Episcopalians had about, you know, the whole idea about loving your neighbor. Matter of fact, my, the Van Sickles shared with me this week, she says, Pastor, can you put this on maybe a little card? And so I think that we have some of these, and if we don't, if we run out today, we'll make some more up. And, I, and, they, and so we actually put these on a little card, and it's about loving your neighbor. By the way, um, uh, James talks about, he says, the royal law, according to the Lord, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Can you say it with me? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit the sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is what he said. So he says, you know, and the idea, can you put that back up on the screen? So the idea, love your neighbor who doesn't look like you, think like you, love like you, speak like you, pray like you, vote like you, just love your neighbor, no exceptions, no loopholes. There you go. So I thought it was interesting. So then um, James talks about showing favoritism and also the opposite of that is, you know, we should just, well, once again, love our neighbor for, uh, as ourselves. Then he goes on and says, okay, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, but for judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Ooh, Mercy. You see the great reversal? You got mercy, you got judgment. You got favoritism, you got partiality. It's a great reversal. I love what Paul was said. Paul put this, he says, um, hey, listen, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. I, here, here's another one. Name this person. Comes out of the book of Luke. Now, I just spent, you know, six weeks on during Lent talking about Luke. And Luke, once again, we find the kind of great reversal in Luke over and over again, and we find how Luke is always lifting up the lowly, right? There was the theme I talked about, and so um, the idea that we find here, you know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, and Jesus says, hey, listen, I, I didn't come to, well, to be served, but I, I came to serve. Name this person. 
He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. Mary in the Magnificat. Uh, the great reversal, blessed are the poor, Luke says, for yours is the kingdom of God. And Matthew, Matthew has a little different version, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. But, Matthew, but Luke just says, hey, listen, blessed are the poor. I, I love James's version about lifting up the lowly uh, and, you know, the great reversal. This is, what, this is what James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So care for the orphans and the widows and their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I love that. I just love that. Do, do we have that up on the screen? Do we have possibly? Okay, here, okay. Can you read that with me? This is important. So here we go. Religion that is pure and defiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and the widows and their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I love, love that. It's just, so, you know, James defines this about lifting up the lowly and not showing people favoritism. Don't judge a book by its cover. And why did James outline the orphans and the widows? Is because, you know what, if you're an orphan, you like, man, tough road. Um, if you're a, a widow in that society, in that patriarchal society, uh, if you, I mean, your husband was your livelihood. If you didn't have a husband, man, you're dependent upon other people. Um, what is an orphan? i tell you a quick little story. I'll wrap this up because we, we need to get prepared for communion. But, you know, my, my friend and I, I got a picture of my friend and I. This is a picture of my friend and I and my, my daughter, little granddaughter, uh, Marley. And, and so um, and I, um, she's a widow. Um, we met her. She came from Africa. Um, we met her back in early, uh, late, let's see, 1989. She was in her church in Miami. She had come here. She, uh, one of her friends who brought her from Africa had some means to, um, and she came and actually stayed there in Miami and she became a United States citizen, which was a huge thing for her to get that before. So then she got married um, to a true African, Charles, and he, she raised the money to be able to bring him over to America and they got married and looked like they were gonna have a beautiful life together. And then, um, and then he died. And she had these beautiful little children. I mean, they're little. And so then she went back to Africa to try to raise her children. And you know what? Let me tell you the mortality rate, mortality rate in the 1990s in Zimbabwe, Africa was about 40. 40. Because of disease and AIDS. So she's trying to raise her children. And then she would send letters back to my wife and Donna. She'd say, hey, listen. If I should die, please come get my children. And so Donna made a commitment to her. If she died, that we would come get her kids because we loved her that much. Well, unfortunate, fortunate, she didn't die, um, and I raised enough money to be able to bring her back to America. But when she came here, she came with nothing. I mean, when I say nothing, nothing. The only thing that she had was in a little bag that was about the size that you go to Publix and the little green bags you have over there. She had everything and all her possessions and her kids in tow. And what was in the bag is what Don had sent to her. That was it. No money, nothing. Started with nothing. And um, she worked hard. And, you know, what's just amazing about that story is, you know how life is funny, how it just comes full circle in life. I mean, sometimes you, when you're just obedient to God, God is so good. So I had this vision, just take care of the widows and the orphans. So I was just taking care of one of my friends, just loved her. 
And you know what? Um, you know, a funny day, thing happened to me one day when I was going fishing. I got run over by a truck. And it was a bad day. But guess who came to take care of me? My little African friend. She bathed me. She clothed me. She fed me. She just cared for me. Now, little did I know, 20 years ago, when I ran the Boston Marathon to raise enough money to bring her back here to take care of her children, had no clue. Sometimes it's just good to be obedient to God, isn't it? To care of the widows and the orphans. Not show favoritism. By the way, the whole idea about not judging people by their face, it's there. Go back and look at the original Greek about favoritism. Okay. I close with this little story to get ready for this. Once upon a time, there was a one, uh, she had a little girl, and the little girl was holding two apples. And then she, her mother had told her little daughter, she says, honey, um, could you please give mommy one of your apples? And the little girl looked up at her mom, and in a matter of a few seconds, she took a bite out of one apple, and then she took a bite out of the other apple. And the mom felt hurt and disappointed in her daughter that she was being so selfish. And then the little girl smiled at her mother and said to her mother, here you go, mommy. This is the sweeter one. So think about Jesus on the cross. Jesus takes a bite of a really bitter apple. And he hands us the sweetness of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. And by the way, when they crucified him, I guarantee you there were a lot of people when they put him in that tomb, they never thought he'd ever come out. Don't judge a book by its cover.